Hello, this is the audio version of the Fleet Street Fox column for Monday, June the 6th, 2022. Boris Johnson is the only person left with any confidence in him. Well, you can say this for the Tories. They've taken the phrase the natural party of government and really made it their own. Mired in a scandal over parties, the party refrained from knifing its leader over the weekend in order to not disrupt the ability of the Queen to successfully hold a four-day piss-up of her own. So loose are the rebels that they launched a post-dated coup a week after we heard the cacophonic clinking of Sue Gray emptying the Downing Street bottle bank. The party, benighted by partying, is now insisting on holding a vote about who knew what about all these parties that they weren't invited to. As we tick down to the denouement this evening of a confidence vote, the Conservative Party is now at the point of drinking foreign spirits unwisely bought on holiday and which they found at the back of a cupboard. They're picking fights, bursting into tears, and are about to spill onto the pavement, shirt tails out, for what your mum would call fisticuffs, the tabloids define as a fracas, and Jacob Rees-Mogg has this morning referred to as a folder roll. We've all been at that party. We all know what happens. A few lads turn ape, some girls scream abuse, and whoever tries to separate the protagonist gets a thump on the ear roll before ending up in a hedge. Tonight, it'll be Jeremy Hunt taking on the role of Billy Big Balls as Nadine Dorries threatens physical violence to a former best friend and Dominic Raab will try to make friends with some privet. What matters is not the fight. What matters is the mess that's left behind and who's going to clean it up. There is no possibility that this Prime Minister, having never been much liked by his party, will be applauded by it tonight. There is likewise zero chance he'll resign, citing honour and the ability to lead and thanking the nation for giving him the greatest honour of his life. There are two possibilities. The first is that he could just say, Oh, stuff it. I'd get a million pounds a year writing for the Wellygraph. My wife could play ABBA as much as she likes and I didn't like the wallpaper anyway. I'm off. It's possible but unlikely that someone who wanted to be world king as a boy and always had a transactional relationship with the Tories is going to suddenly drop the reins of power and stop bribing supporters. Which leaves us with door number two, where the vote is held and the PM will call even the tiniest win a crushing mandate and he'll be safe from further rebellions, in theory, for a year. Expect a quick reshuffle, a cheap house sale and a declaration that he didn't want to win those two by-elections later this month anyway. Desperate stuff, they'll say. Fatally wounded, they'll add. Tick-tock, they'll mutter. Now picture him saying all that at 3am with a split lip while his best mate's cuddling a hedge and some appalling banshee is still staring daggers at anyone who crosses her fella. He may not be the world's nicest human, but he did just win. And he's sashayed home with his bird and a ticket from the police while Jeremy Hunt is calling for a cab for his wounded pride. Tories come from many walks of life, but they're rarely bare-knuckle street fighters. Only an alumni of the worst excesses of the Bullingdon Club is likely to qualify, and in Boris Johnson, they've got one who, if he ever lost, has enough confidence to declare it a complete and total victory and probably persuade the bystanders who saw him lose too. If the Prime Minister wins the confidence vote by as thin a margin as 179 to 80, he will think himself lucky. 
He'll kick the pre-election planning up a gear, start issuing promises and stride confidently towards the next general election without a single glance back over his shoulder. His party, meanwhile, will be over. They're already in about 40 different factions and by the end of the week that will have doubled. That makes them easier to pick off with manifesto pledges and in a few weeks Durham police will announce the results of their investigation into Keir Starmer's one regret-loaded beer. In autumn, the Standards and Privileges Committee will deliver their verdict on Partygate and whatever it says, the PM will declare himself vindicated and that it's time to move on again. As the rains set in, the Russian tanks will once again become bogged down in Ukrainian mud and as we switch the heating back on, the cost of gas, lecky and oil will be centre stage. If Putin pulls back, it will be Boris what won it. If the energy prices start to fall, or the cap is not as high as feared, it will be Boris what cut it. The backbenchers will be fighting like cats, but without a credible candidate, without anyone able to magnetise support as Boris did when undermining Theresa May, there'll just be a lot of dead cats. Because who in their right mind would want to be in charge of the Tory party? Who'd want the task of feeding, watering and entertaining such an angry, disunited rabble? Perhaps some Conservative MPs think the best plan is to lose the next election, shuck the dead weight and build back better. It's been done before. The simple truth is that the rebels need 180 MPs to decide the PM is an electoral liability and they've spent most of the past decade convincing themselves he's the best thing since gerrymandering. Even if they find that magic number, he'll still walk out of Downing Street declaring himself the most popular Prime Minister since Jesus. And he will never, just never, go quiet. They could throw him out and they'd still be divided. They'll still lose in 2024. They'll still face an impossible economic crisis and anger at the ballot box. Or they could keep him and buy themselves two years on full pay in which to plot, bid for a peerage, find a new job or hope that world events will repaper the last year. The one rule about parties which everyone forgets is that there's always a hangover. As with an armful of tinnies in a mate's backyard, so it is with 12 years of unfettered power. Boris or no Boris, pandemic, financial crisis or war in Europe, any party on its fourth administration and third PM is on its way out. Because there's nothing that makes Westminster stink as much as failing to clean it regularly. The Conservative Party has lost confidence in itself. But Boris Johnson still has plenty of his own. Politics is mostly theatre, and sometimes acting like Billy Big Balls is all you need to do. This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Friday, June the 10th, 2022. Bothering Boris Johnson to win justice. The inside story of how we spoke truth to power. Walking up to a door and hammering on it, knowing you're going to ruin someone's day, is both the best and worst bit of being a reporter. You must persuade someone to open up, overcome their blanket distrust of all journalists and be invited to sit at their table. You need to tease the truth from them carefully, like reeling a guinea worm out of their guts with a slowly turning stick. That's hard enough with any door, but when it's the one leading to the Prime Minister's private parliamentary office and Nadine Dorries is guarding the corridor outside, it takes considerable extra effort. 
Usually, getting through the door to find another journalist has got there first is wall-punching time. Instead, I cricked my brass neck, put my hand out to Boris Johnson and said, Hello, Prime Minister. I'm Susie from the Mirror. He stepped forwards, hand out, in greeting people mode. Hello, hello. And then looked up and there was a flash of recognition. Susie! Aha! Yes! The thought occurred that perhaps he recognised me as that woman who bollocks him on the telly. Oh dear, brazen it out. Tell him only he can fix this injustice and then introduce him to everyone filing in behind. The knocking on this door began just over a year ago when the Mirror launched its Look Me in the Eye campaign to get a sitting Prime Minister to hold a meeting with Britain's nuclear test veterans for the first time and explain why they didn't have a medal. Keir Starmer gave it a bang last June and Salford MP Rebecca Long-Bailey knocked again in November. In December, Metro Mayors Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham thumped it a fourth time and in March, Rebecca came back for another try, followed a month later by Tory grandee Sir John Hayes. But in truth, it goes back further, to 2018 and a widow called Shirley Denson who knocked on the door of then Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson and asked him to explain why her husband was ordered to fly through a mushroom cloud and then abandoned by his country to years of illness and eventual suicide. It goes back to 2012 when the High Court said the veterans' case should be heard and 2014 when the Supreme Court decided it shouldn't. It goes back to 2007 when Gordon Brown said the veterans were owed a debt of honour and then didn't pay it. It goes back to 1990 when, as a young MP, Tony Blair backed a law to compensate the veterans and once in office said there was no need. It goes back to 1988 when the government published its first long-awaited study into the cancer deaths of these men and didn't bother to publish the 140 pages of data which would have proved the case for many of them. The path to this door began with the discovery of plutonium in 1940, the weapons' first use in New Mexico and then Japan, the deaths of scientists, soldiers and civilians. It zigzagged across continents and through families, parliaments and universities, and in most places it found some sort of resolution. In the UK alone, the path to justice for nuclear veterans has been unremittingly hard, without succour or shade from the state, which is how we found ourselves on Wednesday walking through the maze of green carpeted corridors to knock on the most important door so far. Daily Mirror editor Alison Phillips came to wave us off and we had tickets to Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle's private gallery in the House of Commons to watch the first Prime Minister's question since he survived a no-confidence vote on Monday. An aide from the PM's team collected us and led the way through a maze of green carpeted corridors Past dories, through a door, a twist, another door, offices with people bent over their desks, another turn and into a room with a ceiling far beyond the reach of any mortal stepladder. And there we are, the place where either the path becomes a dead end or the PM decides to walk with us. The six, veteran John Morris, his granddaughter Laura, widow Jackie Purse and her son Steve, and siblings Alan Owen and Laura Jackson, had rehearsed on Zoom for two months. Unable to fit any more people in the room, they each had to speak for a different injustice, with just three and a half minutes each to make their case. The veterans and families sat on one side of a 20-foot table, with the PM, his advisers, Veterans Minister Leo Doherty and civil servants on the other. They had leather-bound notebooks, and as Rebecca started thanking them for organising the meeting, they began taking notes with expensive-looking fountain pens. I made mine with a bick I'd probably picked off the floor somewhere in a dogged spiral bound that was half-inch the last time I was in a newsroom. 
We had planned that John would speak of Operation Grapple, the tragic death of his baby son Stephen and his fight for a war pension. Steve would discuss medical research and the horrors of the radioactive minor trials in the Australian outback. Alan and Laura would cover the need for education reforms and Operation Dominic, a series of massive US tests in which British servicemen and resources were used and compensated by a foreign government while ignored by their own. John spoke first and got carried away. He banged the table, he raged and fought back tears. And when he finished, I looked at my watch and saw we'd burned through half our allotted time. But it worked. The official pens were down, brows furrowed, ears quivering. As John spoke passionately of his pride at securing the nuclear deterrent for his country, the ex-military in the room stiffened their spines. When he outlined his health problems and said he'd been refused a war pension, the PM burst out, Really? No pension? He looked disgustedly around the room. Then John's voice broke as he said he just wanted justice for his dead son, and the room had nothing to say. The PM, shaking his head, softly said, And you found him in his cot. I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry for your loss. I sat at one end of the table with the PM's official photographer taking pictures over my shoulder. Clutched in my hands all day was a folder of evidence. As the others made their case in turn, the mirror validated their words with the proof of what they said from the latest research and the government's own documents. Their testimony was punctuated with facts we had triple-checked the rates of infant mortality, the radiogenic nature of the illnesses being discussed, the fact 92% of servicemen at Operation Grapple Y in 1958 never even had their radiation monitored. And I waited for the right moment. During our preparations, I'd written briefings for the PM and his team, made the case for a medal and laid out what else we'd asked for. But I kept one thing back, a fact which I wanted the PM's raw reaction to, without time to think of excuses or platitudes. It happened earlier than I expected, John mentioned having blood samples taken while on Christmas Island, with no sign of them in his records. The PM nodded, and if I didn't say it now, there wouldn't be time. These are the blood counts taken for one airman, I said, shoving a 1958 memo at the PM. Yet his family have been told there are no blood counts in his record. Withholding medical information is a criminal offence, Prime Minister. Yes, it is, he agreed. He read the memo. I showed him two more. He asked me to explain what they meant, and I told him what the experts had told me. I simply cannot explain the shortage of medical records, he said, shaking his head. He looked at me and said, where do you think they are? When the PM has to ask the mirror what's going on, he's in trouble. They must be found, he said, whatever vault they were in. The meeting turned from a politically necessary listen to an eye-opening revelation as the others spoke their pieces, and we ran over time. I told the PM that many veterans couldn't get a medal because they were dead and others were too angry to accept it. You've heard there are many things that could and should be done, I said, but the one thing everyone I've spoken to agrees on is that what's really needed is a moment of national recognition, an event where the state acknowledges these men and says, we see you. Sir John closed the meeting, the PM thanked everyone and posed for a photo, and as we filed out, I noticed the very expensive wallpaper, which, for once, was nothing to do with him. Because we had spoken to the office of Prime Minister, not the man accused of lying or lockdown parties. We knocked on a door which few people ever walk through, into a room usually reserved for firing ministers in a reshuffle. In the place where he was used to exercising his power, we had exercised ours. 
Perhaps this PM will also be the first to see the political necessity of helping the test veterans, of forcing leadership rivals Keir Starmer and the SNP to say well done to him. For a man whose legacy in office will be so divisive, it must be tempting to know that he has the means to unite all his enemies in praise. That's why journalists knock on doors and bother people. If we didn't, things would be worse.